Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome to our special broadcast, Coronavirus Changed Forever, from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We're going to spend a good deal of the broadcast this week talking about the future of jobs and the economy, both during and after this epidemic. And we're going to start off with Chris Liu. He was Deputy Secretary of Labor from 2014 to 2017, also Deputy Chief Counsel for the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, and now a Senior Fellow with the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Chris, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We are over 30 million people now having filed for unemployment. So basically all of the job recovery that we had going back to the recession has just been wiped out. How bad is this? It is bad. And it's not those just those jobs, but several million more have been wiped out. It's it's likely that every job created in the last 20 years in this country has now been wiped out. I think what we don't know now is how sustained this is. We know that when the economy begins to reopen around the, the country, many of these jobs will come back. The challenge right now is that even the reopening that's happening is limited. Uh, And the question is, is whether many small businesses in particular can operate with the health restrictions. And if they can't operate, that means their workers can't come back either. You know, when I talk about 30 million having filed for unemployment, that is probably not the whole situation because there are people who are having problem filing claims. We also have people who are unemployed but do not qualify for benefits. They're not even in that number. Absolutely. We continue to hear about problems with people trying to navigate antiquated state unemployment insurance systems. Um, We know that uh, millions of other workers have had their hours cut. Those aren't showing up at the numbers as well. And even for those people who have successfully applied, many of them have not received any benefits at all. Florida, for instance, which is one of the harder hit states, uh, reported that less than 50% of the people that have applied have gotten any money so far. Chris, does this start to get better or does this keep getting worse? And the reason I ask that is we haven't really dealt with the states yet. Many have balanced budget requirements. And unlike the federal government, of course, they can't just print money. So I'm wondering what's ahead, because if they have to do a balanced budget, considering how big the hole is that they've had to dig right now, they could be laying off police, firefighters, workers at state hospitals. I mean, is that down the road as states do their next year fiscal budget? Yeah, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit them much sooner. Uh, Governor Cuomo in New York has estimated that they're running a $15 billion deficit. Governor Whitmer in Michigan is estimating a $3 billion deficit. And as you point out, states can't run budget deficits. And Uh, Given the fact that most of the revenues right now are coming uh, from taxes, income taxes, sales taxes that aren't going in the door right now, they don't have a lot of places to cut. And so it's going to be teachers, police, firefighters, sanitation workers, health inspectors uh, who are going to be potentially laid off. And it's one of the reasons why 
there's an ongoing battle right now in Washington to provide some financial relief to state and local governments. Well, let's talk about that. Some politicians, such as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, like the idea of letting the states go bankrupt. The thinking there is apparently not only to get state governments smaller, but to get them out from under pensions that were promised years ago. But what effect would that have, say, on the bond market, not to mention the many seniors who have made plans for their future based on those pensions that they figured to get? Yeah, no, I mean, that that has dramatic ramifications for the credit ratings of these uh, states. And look, this should not be a partisan issue. And and what has been interesting is the amount of pushback that Senator McConnell has gotten from both Democrats and Republicans on this issue. Um, you know, look, we can have a longer conversation about uh, how well state budgets are managed, but that's not what this is about. This is an unforeseen crisis that has caused states to incur uh, unexpected expenses, uh, and the federal government should help them step in the same way that we would help uh, states if they were uh, hit by a natural disaster like a hurricane. Try not to drag politics into this, as impossible as that may be in an election year, but I know that you were one of the people that worked on laying out to the incoming Trump administration what was ahead. And one of the things that you apparently talked to the Trump administration people about as they came in was what to do in the event of a global pandemic. What was said and who was there? So a week before Inauguration Day uh, in January 2017, uh, the outgoing Obama senior leadership team from both the White House and the agencies uh, sat down with our counterparts, uh, people that would take the positions we had. And we went through in a tabletop exercise that went a good part of the day, several possible scenarios that they might encounter. And we tried to pick scenarios that were likely. So one was a hurricane, one was a cyber attack, and the third was a pandemic. And we walked through a fact pattern with them that talked about a pandemic beginning in Asia and Europe, a, 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 lead, a lag time before it came to the United States. Uh, but we talked about you know, equipment shortages, lack of uh, personal protective equipment, uh, the inability to find a, a vaccine, and how when you're confronted with that situation, how the federal government both coordinates with itself uh, as well as state government to address an issue like this. And the exercise wasn't about them um, uh, trying to, to, to coordinate among themselves, but helping them understand that when you're in a crisis like this, coordination is important, understanding how government works is important, and having experienced people is important. And what's notable is of the 30 or so people that were there from the Trump team, uh, about 20 have now left. Um, so even if it was a message that was well conveyed, and I think it was, um, it wasn't conveyed to the people that are there right now. And so I think it's, again, it, it's, it, it speaks to the importance of having good people there who are prepared and who have gone through experiences like this before. Were there specifics involved in that tabletop exercise in terms of the things that we've ended up talking about, equipment like masks and ventilators? Did it get into that kind of specificity or is it more general? Well, it, it, it was fairly general, uh, but we also left them with a playbook of how you deal with a pandemic. It was a 69 page playbook that basically ran through all of these different scenarios and what the federal government should do when faced with, you know, for instance, a shortage of PPEs and how you uh, reached out to the uh, private sector to coordinate the purchases, how you distribute them to the state. So many of the issues that the administration, the current administration is now grappling with were ones that we had, had identified for them. There are people listening who are confused about what they're going to be doing, even at federal agencies. For instance, the president would like to reopen business and government as soon as possible and get the economy going again. Some governors agree with that. Some governors do not agree with that. And I think workers in the various states are wondering, who do I listen to? 
Yeah, well, first and foremost, they should be listening to their uh, to their governors, to their mayors, and their governors and mayors should be making those decisions based on consultation with uh, public health officials. So I think a lot of people listening are trying to figure out what does the future look like? And I know no matter what kind of exercise with such a unique virus such as this, we have unique problems. So what do you think the next six months might look like? And I'm not asking for a specific prediction. I think it's going to be a very difficult six months and potentially a a difficult uh, 2021 as well. Uh, We're going to have parts of the country that are going to be beginning to open. Um, We're going to have businesses that are open, but under um, more restrictive standards. You know, for instance, in Texas right now, restaurants will be able to reopen, uh, but tables will have to be six feet apart. Uh, restaurants will only be able to have 25% of their maximum occupancy. So that's going to create a much different dining experience. But really, that means you're not going to need 100% of your workers back. So I think you're going to start to see parts of the economy open, but it's going to happen in fits and starts. And, you know, if you start to see additional outbreaks, a potential second wave, you'll have businesses closing again. And so it's it won't be business as usual for a long time. You know, what are the additional... Uh, protections that are going to be required of workers when they go back into the office? Or is it the case that some people go back into the office, some people continue to telework? And so uh, it's going to be an unusual uh, and unsettling period of time, uh, I think, for the near future. As the title of our broadcast goes, we may be changed forever. How do you figure out what our future may be in terms of how many of the things we're doing now stay with us? How do you game something like that? Yeah, no, I think You know, I think it's going to accelerate a lot of the changes we've seen uh, in the broader nature of work. As you said, you know, I think a lot of companies have realized, look, having 100 percent of your workers telework is not ideal, but you probably don't need 100 percent back in the office. Uh, So what does that mean for uh, commercial office space in this country? Uh, You know, you're going to have situations where uh, we know retail has had a tough couple of years. And now that people are used to buying things online or having things delivered to the house, Uh, What does that mean for, you know, traditional shopping malls? Uh, Will they continue to be in decline? Um, You know, are people going to sort of say, hey, you know what? I just don't need to go to a movie theater. Um, You know, I can watch something at home just as easily. So um, it's going to cause broader transformations in, in how we live our lives. Chris Liu was Deputy Secretary of Labor from 2014 to 2017. He is now a senior fellow with the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. You're listening to Coronavirus, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus, Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. The American economy has hit a bump. Well, really more like going through a guardrail and over a cliff because of COVID-19. Congress passed a package that was supposed to help small businesses recover with loans that were forgivable as long as they protected jobs. But more than a third of a trillion dollars was scooped up in a matter of days. And maybe that should have been a clue as to what happened, because most mom-and-pop businesses would not have had the wherewithal to get through that paperwork in a matter of days. Congress approved another $310 billion dollars. But the question now is, where is this money going? Are small businesses getting it? And is the money protecting jobs? Judd Legum is an investigative reporter behind the newsletter Popular Information. Many of the headlines that you've been seeing about this part of the coronavirus story originated with him. Judd, welcome. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I think probably most people first heard about your story with the Los Angeles Lakers 
And we're talking about a franchise that's worth about $4 billion and turns out an annual profit in excess of $100 million, pays people like LeBron James and Anthony Davis tens of millions of dollars a year. Yet they applied for and received a Paycheck Protection Program loan. Yeah, and I think the Lakers, and although they, they did eventually return it once the word of this loan got out, I think it shows a lot of the problems that are inherent in the program. Uh, one is the banks really prioritized their best existing clients. So if you're the Lakers, if you're another larger firm, or if you're any kind of firm that has an existing lending relationship, a line of credit, other sorts of things, the, the banks took care of those customers first. And then also the way the government set it up, if you approved a $5 million loan, which was about what the Lakers got, 4.6, you got $50,000 fee from the government as a bank. If you pr- approved a $50,000 loan, you got a $2,500 fee. So the banks were really incentivized to, to take care of the big loans first because those were the loans that were making them the most money. So if you were working to make the most money as a bank, I guess the feeling was, why make 30 of these loans to small businesses and make a few bucks on each one when you can make one big loan to a big business? Yeah, they were not doing it uh, altruistically. They were getting paid. And the way you could have set it up where you just had a flat fee, you do a loan, the government pays you $5,000 or whatever it is, $500, whatever you wanted to decide it was for the fee. And and it wouldn't matter how much the loan was for. That would have put people more in an even playing field. But by paying more money for bigger loans, uh, you then incentivize these larger companies uh, to to come through. So I guess the figuring of the banks was... Why make 30 of these loans to small businesses and make a few bucks each when you can make one big loan to a big business and get the same amount of money? I think a lot of Americans did not even think about the idea of banks getting fees for these things. Yeah, there, there's hundreds of public companies. Uh, now, as, as some of them have started to uh, get a bit of publicity from this, there's a couple of dozen who've returned it, but most people have kept the money. And they didn't make – you could have said, well, if you're a public company – with uh, usually have a market cap of millions of dollars uh, and also access to other sources of capital, you wouldn't be eligible for this program. But that's not what they did. And the result was you have corner stores and local restaurants and local enterprises trying to compete with public companies that have millions of dollars, not only to pay their CEOs, but to pay their lawyers and their accountants. And the result was there were some local enterprises and mom and pop enterprises that got money, but most of them got left out of this round. And we're still waiting to see what happens in the next round, but there were really not, there weren't a lot, there were some changes made, but there weren't a lot of changes made to how the program operates. Wasn't there supposed to be somebody kind of overseeing this, making sure that the program was indeed protecting jobs, making sure that people actually got jobs out of this program and also protecting small businesses to make sure this thing worked the way it was supposed to? There was, and that person was fired by Donald Trump. Uh, the inspect- basically, all the inspectors generals got together and appointed someone um, who appointed one of them to oversee it. That person was then fired so that they wouldn't be able to do that job and replaced by someone who Trump was more comfortable with. So there really isn't vigorous oversight. The other thing is when Congress set this up, uh, they didn't require, no matter how large the loan is, and, and these loans are up to $10 million, and some companies have gotten even more than that by applying through various subsidiaries, but no matter what the size is, 
they don't have to make these loans public. The only information we are getting is from the public companies who've taken these loans because they have to file with the Securities and Exchange Commission or companies that just voluntarily disclose that they've gotten a loan. But for the vast majority of these loans, we don't know who it is. And it makes oversight very difficult, not only government oversight, but just oversight for folks like me who are trying to look into it and understand it. So as bad as what we know from what we've learned so far, the reality could be much worse. We just don't know. There were some other things that happened that sounded to people when Congress passed it like it was going to help them, such as mandating sick leave during the pandemic. But it turns out 80% of American workers are exempted from that. Yeah, this is actually a good package that Congress put together. It said, with this health emergency, everyone is going to get 14 days of guaranteed paid sick leave. Um, and then they're going immediately, and then also going to accrue paid sick leave over time. Uh, but then what happened was they exempted everyone who works for a company that has more than 500 people and also allowed companies with 50 or less people uh, to be exempted as well. So those exemptions actually swamp the number of people who are covered that by now. It's about 80% of the people who, who work for companies that are exempt. And those companies really very few of them are matching what we saw in the legislation. So this is going to be a a really big issue now, especially moving forward, um, because right now it's states with Republican governors, but over time it's going to be all states. More and more people are going to be coming back to work prior to a vaccine when there's still a, a, a danger of getting sick and they're going to have to make decisions between, you know, going into work with mild symptoms where they could still be contagious and getting paid. And that's one of the concerns right now, because we do have people going back to work, meatpackers being ordered to go back to work, and there's the question of whether there is protection available for them or not. There's also a lot of shopping malls that are reopening, and it's a tough choice for a lot of workers, because you're thinking, well, if I'm not protected, I don't want to get sick, but on the other hand, I really need the money for rent, food, for a lot of people. They don't get health insurance unless they're working, so this is a tough choice during an epidemic. Yeah, and I think one thing that the epidemic has really shown is how interconnected we really all all are, meaning that there are people out there uh, who have great uh, sick leave benefits. They can make sure to stay home or work from home if they're ever feeling uh, sick. But what we've learned is that doesn't really protect you if the people at the supermarket, the people at the pharmacy, the people that you're going to encounter in your day-to-day life don't have those protections because you want to make sure they're not around if they're feeling sick. So I think hopefully as, as we get through this, uh, we we realize that and, and we can make some changes to make sure that we can protect everyone. But as of now, um, that's not in place um, and and things are, are, are more the same than perhaps uh, they should be uh, and that we're hoping they're going to be in the future. Senator Mitch McConnell says giving businesses immunity from litigation is his top priority in a new stimulus package. He wants to make sure that reopening does not make you responsible for workers' health if they get sick, and that he would oppose any funding for state and local governments unless the package includes a liability shield. How important is that? Because even if somebody has the right to sue, it's kind of tough to go to court and prove where you got a virus. Yeah, and I think no matter what, it's going to be very difficult for employees who end up getting sick at work to prove it and to successfully litigate against 
their employer. But I think the issue with what McConnell is suggesting, which is essentially creating a blanket liability shield for all employers, is that they don't even have to worry about it. They don't even have to essentially construct a defense, which is, hey, we put all of these appropriate safety procedures into place because they know that no matter what happens, they can't be found liable. So I think that's really the concern is that it removes the incentives of businesses to do everything they can to protect their employees. Some businesses will do that anyway, but others will not. And if McConnell is successful in pushing this broad liability shield through, it could put more employees in a in a dangerous situation in the weeks and months to come. And I guess that's one of the questions as people are being told to get back to work. Is there anything that requires people being made safe or as safe as possible? Is this a federal thing or is this a state by state thing? How do people know if they're going back, they won't get sick? Yeah, right now it is going to be state by state. OSHA, the federal government, is putting out guidelines and procedures that it's recommending, but these are optional. So there is no enforcement attached to them. They could make them mandatory. They could have enforcement, but they're not doing that. So it's up to states. And the problem with that is many states don't have a mechanism to enforce uh, state labor practices. Uh, So it's going to vary. Some states will probably be okay and, and have good procedures in other states um, there, there isn't going to be those protections in place. Jed Legum is an investigative reporter for the newsletter Popular Information, which can be reached at popular.info, popular.info. This is Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the things we're trying to figure out about this virus is who is likely to survive and who is not. We know some groups are especially likely to be in trouble, seniors, for example, but also those dealing with obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart trouble. And what's especially troubling there is some groups are much more likely to suffer from all of that, especially in poor minority communities. And those areas, on top of everything else, do not have easy access to doctors. And of course, very few people may have health insurance, so you can see the problem. The Reverend Frederick D. Haynes is senior pastor of Friendship West Baptist Church in Dallas. Good to have you with us, sir. How are you? Thank you so much, Gil. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm fine, so we can both count ourselves lucky these days because we're dealing with a virus that doesn't care about rich or poor or boundaries. But all of those things do matter in whether people get good medical treatment and can recover. We have seen, unfortunately, that this particular virus has exposed what Bishop William Barber calls the fissures or the ruptures or the breaches in our systems. And so even though it is non-discriminatory in terms of who it goes after, Sadly, it becomes discriminatory when it exposes those broken places in our healthcare systems, when it comes to zip code injustice, environmental racism, all of those things are contributing factors so that uh, the African-American community uh, and communities of color, communities that are impoverished, are going to unfortunately be exposed to this virus in a disproportionate fashion. Just having access to testing is a problem. 
Exactly. And so unfortunately, I've had to say that we are tested least, but dying the most. And this virus is non-discriminatory itself. So even if I am infected because I did not get tested, eventually I'm going to come in contact with other people. Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We can now say an infection anywhere is a threat to good health everywhere. There's something at the bottom of the health crisis in poor communities, and that's the poor food available. For people who aren't aware of the figures, African Americans between the ages of 35 and 64 are 50 percent, five zero percent more likely to have high blood pressure. 35 percent of kidney dialysis patients are African Americans, even though they're only 13 percent of the population, and they are at least 60 percent more likely to be diabetic. A lot of that has to do with the food that gets subsidized to make it cheap. We have people who look like they're overfed. They're actually undernourished. And again, it's as if those foods that are cheapest and most unhealthy, they are targeted, especially for communities that are already food deserts. I won't forget what happened to me about a month ago when the crisis had just hit. I decided to go and find something close by in the neighborhood to eat. And my options were basically limited to fast food choices, no grains, no vegetables. And it was a very depressing experience because my options were so limited. And often we make judgments about the choices that people are making, but we are clueless about the options that shape those choices. And so what we're going to have to do to come out of this on the other side healthier uh, so that we are ready for a a better future is to ensure that options uh, are expanded as it relates to food choices. We're going to have to make sure uh, that persons have access to health care other than just ER, because the sad reality is if we do not pay for it up front, we're going to end up having to pay for it much later. And the later costs are always much more expensive than the cost up front. What does the response or lack of response from federal, state and local governments tell us about their priorities, about what government cares about? Uh, Eddie Glau Jr. uh, wrote about the fact that there's a value gap that exists uh, in this country. Some lives are valued more than others, and it always shows up when it comes to budgets. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, So your budget is a moral compass that reflects the priorities that you have. And so when we ignore the plight of the disadvantage, when we ignore the those uh, ruptures in society that allow viruses to spread. It's saying a lot about how we do not value certain people. And so I think we have to take an honest look at how we value people, how we value humanity, knowing again that this virus keeps on saying to us, we are all in this together until all of us are safe and healthy. Really, none of us are going to be safe and healthy. So I think this is a good time for everyone to take an honest look at how, at the role of government, but not only the role of government, but the priorities of government that play out and manifest themselves even in budgeting and public policy. Reverend Frederick D. Haynes, Senior Pastor at Friendship West Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Good to talk to you, sir. Thank you for being with us. And thank you so much. You stay safe and healthy. You're listening to the special Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. 
Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. The effect on jobs as well as lives from this pandemic has been more than almost anybody other than a few epidemiologists and some health journalists could imagine. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger joins us now. Jill, good to talk to you again. Good to be with you as well. There are businesses trying to figure out how to adjust. The first thing was just to get through this. Now they have to figure out how to reopen and also whether this is going to change their business plans for the future. This isn't the kind of thing you can just buy some software for and you get a magic answer. You know, that is a really interesting question and query in general. I've been talking to a lot of small business owners who certainly understand their business, but what they don't understand, and maybe it's impossible to understand, is how to plan out the future in such an uncertain environment. So if you knew I'm absolutely not going to qualify for any of the government programs, then you might say, okay, I've got to shut down my business. A lot of restaurants actually have chosen to do this, where maybe they came into the COVID period operating on razor thin margins and that they really needed a great spring, summer, fall to to make their year. And I think now those folks make an easy decision. I've got to close my doors. It's not a it's not fun, but it's obvious. I think the ones in the middle are really wondering, well, what do I do? What do I do if I could open my doors? If if my state were to lift some of the restrictions, would people come? And therein lies the the real difficult aspect of this, the unknown. So, you know, like anything else, uh, as a certified financial planner, I, I always tell people, look at the worst case scenario and walk back from there. So if I'm running a small business, if I cannot create, you know, basically collect a dollar until, let's call it July 1st, what does my business look like? And that might mean that you could survive as long as your landlord gives you abatement, as long as your um, other lenders will help you out, or it might mean I better be prepared to shut the door because I don't want to go into more debt to create a situation where I'm in the exact same place two months from now. We're looking at a situation that doesn't just affect individual businesses, but entire sectors. You know, will business travel be as big a thing now that people have done Zoom so much? How will that affect airlines, hotels, Airbnb, car rentals? Working at home will affect office leases, maybe? Are retail people relying even more on Amazon than they were before? We know that was a major trend, but now it has sped up exponentially. Are those people going to come back? There's entire sectors here that may not come back the way they were. Uh, Absolutely. I interviewed uh, a retail expert and I wanted to try to understand what, what what, what lies ahead. This is a very problematic industry, right? Because you had these large online retailers and large big box stores, right? Like the Walmarts and Targets, they may have started as a box, but those boxes have become massive warehouses, right? And so you've got the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Targets, who are going to do quite well in this period, frankly. They they really are. And, and no one wants to say that, but they are. Um, and then on you sort of go beyond that and you start to say, okay, what's a department store going to do? Well, I spoke to one gentleman um, who's a professor at New York University Stern School, and he said that the pandemic is really more of an accelerant than it is a change agent. And the quote that he gave me was, department stores were in the, quote, seventh inning of their lives. Now they're officially in the bottom of the ninth. And that's pretty daunting if you're a big department store operator. I've been talking to a lot of millennials. My son is one. And 
he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and go, you know, basically my generation is screwed. As he said it, we're in debt for student loans. That's going to affect other businesses because we have no money for cars. We have no money for mortgages. And as the job market reopens, there's going to be a lot of us fighting for jobs. The opposite of what it was just a few months ago, which now seems like forever. And he said, so the salaries and benefits probably aren't going to be what they were. Is that what we're looking at? Absolutely. Uh, I think that there is, um, there's luck and there's a lot of bad luck. Um, and, and here's good luck. Good luck is that you graduate in 1983 and you are in the beginning of a multi-decade bull market. You are essentially able to land a job if you have a heartbeat. And it almost doesn't matter whether you have a college degree or a high school degree, you're going to get a job. And then there's bad luck. And that is many of these millennials some of whom may have graduated into the Great Recession. Had, and when we know when kids graduate into a recession, their earnings for about 20 years are lower than their cohorts who are lucky enough to graduate either in a decent or a really good market. So that's a problem. And then as many of these kids got on their feet and were finally forming households, wham, this comes. I think that there is uh, going to be a real problem in terms of how we see jobs come back online. People will get laid off. That's true. Which one of those will become permanent? Which ones get hired back? And then once you go out into the labor force, you're competing with a lot more people. There could be as many as 10 unemployed job seekers for every job opening. And that will mean that workers are going to have less bargaining power and indeed wages are likely to drop. And so I think that your son has a point that it is bad luck, but unfortunately that's where they are. Final question, Jill. We heard a lot about originally a V-shaped recovery. It went into the tank, but when this clears up, zip, it goes right back up. Now we're hearing different things. People talking about a Nike swoop. If you remember their logo, it goes down, but then it climbs gradually. And some people are talking about a W-shaped recovery where we jump back up like a V, but maybe this thing comes back in the fall and we go down again. Some people think that's the most dangerous one. Can, can you explain all this? Well, I mean, the V-shaped recovery is what you would normally expect after a natural disaster. So Superstorm Sandy comes in and just completely obliterates business activity up and down the Atlantic seaboard, okay? Or a wildfire decimates part of California, or floods really hurt different places in the Midwest. Those are single events where you go down very dramatically in the in the near term, but as soon as the storm passes, you go right up. There's no way that we are in a V-shaped recovery for the economy. I'm not talking about the stock market, just to be clear. I'm talking about the economy. So let's talk about the other alternatives. Well, we could be in a W, and a W would mean down, up a little bit, but then back down. And the back down is a little scary because you can go back down and not come back up for a while because the second leg down can be very difficult to convince consumers or businesses to go out and spend from that area. And then we have some other letters to throw at you. We have an L that maybe moves into a U. An L, we go down sharply, go across and sort of steady at the bottom. And then maybe you complete it by turning it into a U, ultimately going up. And maybe the most frightful one that I have heard recently from an economist, which is the chair. And the chair is you go down very dramatically, then you go across 
the seat for a while, and then you go down on the leg of the chair and you just don't come back. And that's not to say that we'll never come back, but that it takes an awful long time to come back. I want to be clear that, you know, these are not nutty people who are doing this. When we actually look at the Congressional Budget Office, that's nonpartisan, the Congressional Budget Office is projecting that second quarter growth will drop by an annualized rate of 40 for 0%. And to put that in context, that would bring us back to an economy the size of where we were at the end of 2014. So it could easily take two or more years just to get back to the level of economic activity that we had coming into 2020. Jill Schlesinger is the CBS News business analyst. Jill, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. This is Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The restaurant business has been hit hard by the virus and the shutdowns. Now, some have been able to get by on takeout, but most are bleeding money because rent, loans, utilities, insurance, and so many other costs still have to be paid. Kat Kinsman is senior editor of Food and Wine and host of the Food and Wine podcast, Communal Table, which covers issues of mental health and well-being in the culinary world. She's also the author of High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, which I imagine our present crisis has only made worse. Kat, welcome. How are you? Oh, thanks so much for having me. And do you want the real answer or the quick answer, which is what I always ask people these days? Yes, that's a phrase, how are you? That's not a pleasantry anymore, but meant for real. And let's start with that. And we'll start with the issue of anxiety. Some people are able to work from home, but for businesses like restaurants, of course, it's just not possible. So what are you hearing from people, from owners to line cooks, about both how they're doing now and fears about their future? No one's okay right now. I have not encountered a single person who works in hospitality right now who is like, hey, yeah, we got this. It's fine. You know, good to go because this is unprecedented. I don't care how many years you have in the business, how well capitalized you are. Nobody was prepared for this. And the ripple effects are extraordinary. And these are people who go into hospitality because they love interacting with people and feeding people. And right now, so many of them are having problems feeding themselves. It's, it's, um, I, I, I feel confident in saying it's the most dire situation I've ever seen in hospitality. In San Francisco, the Golden Gate Restaurant Association says half of all the restaurants in the city are not expected to reopen. So we're not just talking about how people are doing now, but the reality of even when this is over, they may not have jobs to go back to. Yeah, the the ripple effects are unknown, not just on the hospitality industry itself, but on all of the food chain that you know goes into bringing a restaurant meal to your table. We're talking about farmers, uh, drivers, artisans. Let's talk about how vulnerable the people who work in restaurants are. That's something that's not talked about publicly very often. It's a good place to get back into a job, but Along with that, these jobs usually have no health plan, awful hours. This is a more vulnerable population than people might think. How are they doing now? Not well. Uh, it's, it, you know, I, I run a project called Chefs with Issues, uh, you know, for the past four and a half years, uh, delving into the intersection of hospitality and mental health. And I run a Facebook group that I've lost count at this point, I think it has three or 4,000 members in it. And they are used to a life of, of service. And 
being um, deprived of not just an income, but that kind of interaction and that kind of solidarity with the people who understand your your off color sense of of humor and uh, your your crazy hours and and all of that is really devastating to a lot of, of people. There's there's nothing, you know, there's nothing keeping people in in check right now, and I'm I'm actually really worried. Kat Kinsman is senior editor of Food and Wine and host of their podcast, Communal Table. Kat, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This has been Coronavirus, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.